Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Ontario Animal Health Network uh, podcast. My name is Dr. Maureen Anderson. I am one of the co-leads of the Companion Animal Network, and I am joined today by Dr. Bronwyn Rutland, who is a board-certified internal medicine specialist for companion animals. And we are going to talk about a very stinky subject, chronic diarrhea in dogs and cats. So welcome, Bronwyn. Thank you. And I guess we'll just get right into our questions. So since we're talking about chronic diarrhea, uh, off the top, uh, can you define what you consider chronic diarrhea in pets? Yes, I I think that that's a fairly um, simple thing in the way that usually I categorize chronic diarrhea um, if it's been present for longer than 14 days. Um, So two weeks is, is, is the definition. Fantastic. And in dogs, what are probably the three most common causes of chronic diarrhea that you see? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's, I see a lot of dogs and cats with, um, with diarrhea. It certainly, um, takes up a large, um, a load of, a caseload for, for me. Um, I would say that the, the most common, um, causes that I see would be certainly food allergies or hypersensitivities. Um, simple things such as parasitism, um, you know, is, is not uncommon. Um, and inflammatory bowel disease, I would say, is relatively common as, as well. And what would be the three most common causes of chronic diarrhea in cats? Are they similar? Yeah, they they are fairly similar. Um, you know, and, and generally speaking, I would say, you know, um, food intolerances or um, indiscretion, um, parasitism, inflammatory bowel disease would certainly have um, be the most likely um, uh, causes that I would see in kitty cats as well. How often do you see infectious diseases as a cause of chronic diarrhea in pets? That's a great question. Um, I would say it's... In chronic diarrhea, I think it's less common. Um, and I guess then that gets into the category of, of bacterial dysbiosis because is that technically infectious or not? Because obviously it's a bacterial component. And I think that the bacterial imbalance of the gut um, occurs with any cause of chronic diarrhea. Um, so I think that that's, um, that would be infectious, but I would say that, that it's relatively uncommon um, for chronic diarrhea. That being said, as um, and I know we'll talk about this in a little bit, one of my major management strategies is routine um, deworming of my um, of my patients. And so um, it's interesting that many pets will actually get better after you deworm them, um, even though they've had negative fecals. So that would, would imply that the parasitic disease, and, and we're talking about um, tapeworms in that, as well as, you know, the usual roundworms and, and whatnot, um, are not uncommon causes in, in, in dogs and cats. Very interesting. Uh, So are there any major differences between management of chronic diarrhea in dogs versus cats, given that the most common causes are are quite similar? Um, Not really. Um, And I I think everybody manages these cases a little bit differently. Um, And I try to to rule out those simple things um, first um, in dogs and in cats. And so, um, you know, I think that that my management um, and diagnostic approach for for dogs and cats is fairly similar. Um, 
on, you know, I, I think that, that um, and we can talk about this more later, but, you know, specific differences between cats and dogs is that with cats, you can do food trials a lot more quickly in cats um, after a week or two. Um, you can technically change a cat's diet, um, whereas with dogs, you tend to need to do longer food trials. Um, and the diagnostic approach might be a little bit different in terms of your acquisition of biopsies. But um, management strategies, um, there's not huge differences between them, um, at least in the very initial stages, in, in my opinion. Great. Okay, so to get a little bit more specific, you mentioned your diagnostic approach to chronic diarrhea. Could you talk about what that would be in dogs at a, a reasonably high level? I think that, um, as I said, I see a lot of this and, and you know, in, in these cases that come through my doors, um, they have variable levels of, of diagnostics that are performed and, and, you know, as a clinician, we always review that that information that we have and, and see what's been done um, and response to therapy. And so I think the very first step for me is to 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 get an, an as accurate and, and um, detailed history as you can. Um, you know, and that, as I said, that includes their response to treatments that have been tried. Um, you know, is it um, small bowel versus large bowel or mixed um, diarrhea? Um, is there any weight loss associated with that that can obviously give you a little bit more information if it's small bowel? Um, how long it's been going on for, is the patient sick, um, or is it, um, you know, is it systemically unwell, or is this just being the dog has had, um, you know, large bowel diarrhea, so bloody, you know, di um, diarrhea periodically, but is systemically very well. Um, so I think that the, the pieces of the history are really important in, in getting a little bit more information as to, to where you might go with, with, your, with your tests. Your physical exam is really important. Um, how well does this patient look? Is it, is it a healthy patient with, with intermittent diarrhea or is it a systemically unwell um, pet that, that really might need to be hospitalized and, and be treated a little bit more aggressively? Um, and that certainly helps guide how, how aggressive you need to be with your diagnostics and then, of course, your treatment as well. Um, age and signalment, all of all of those things. Obviously, they come before um, you know your history. Of course, you know what what breed of the of the dog is it? Is a um, a Yorkshire Terrier? Is it a young Yorkshire Terrier? We know that those dogs are predisposed to to protein losing enteropathies. Or is it a Boxer with with bloody diarrhea? And we certainly see colitis and and ulcerative colitis um, or granulomatous colitis in in that breed. So um, that can sometimes give you a little bit more help as well. Um, and then the the other factor which I always talk um, about with the clients um, is how aggressive they want to be and, and we can formulate a plan based upon all of that information as well as, as how aggressive they want to be. Um, my initial um, starting point um, based upon, you know, let's just assume this patient hasn't had any diagnostic done um, when it comes through my doors is, is to get some baseline blood work, so a, um, a complete blood count and, and a full biochemical profile um, and a urine sample should, should always be included with that. And that can help you decide whether or not the patient is, is also systemically unwell. Is there protein loss? Is there white cell abnormalities? Um, is the liver values increased as well? Um, so it can give you an idea of you dealing with predominantly a small intestinal or sort of, a, sorry, a primarily gastrointestinal disease or do we have other evidence of, of organ dysfunction? Um, a fecal profile, talking about the parasites is always really important and making sure, you know, a simple ONP um, is always very important. Um, you know, and a GRDR antigen as well, I think is helpful. Um, and that's my frontline diagnostics, I would say. Um, 
depending on how um, the signalment, and obviously there's lots of different branches that you can go down, but I also like to include a, a baseline cortisol um, to see if there's any evidence of, of atypical Addison's disease. Um, atypical Addison's disease does pop up from time to time, um, often causes um, waxing and waning gastrointestinal symptoms and not so much diarrhea, but I do think it, it is helpful as a, a, to rule it out and, and a baseline cortisol can be helpful with that. Um, a vitamin B12 or cobalamin level um, is, is quite helpful and, and a um, TLI to assess your, your pancreatic function I think um, is quite, quite helpful. Um, then it really depends on, um, you know, if we go into additional diagnostic imaging. And so if you have a, a systemically unwell pet um, and you have blood work findings that show that there's low protein levels, so albumin is low, um, you might have changes with your globulin levels or um, liver enzyme elevations, white cell white cell count elevations. Um, those are the patients that, that certainly jumping in and doing diagnostic imaging like an abdominal ultrasound is very helpful. Um, if it's a young dog and you're suspicious, or even if it's an older patient, if you're suspicious of an intersusception, um, you know, abdominal x-rays can sometimes be helpful, um, but generally an ultrasound gives you a little bit more detail about the structure of the small intestinal um, wall, the stomach obviously too, if, if there may be concurrent, um, you know, upper GI issues, um, you know, and, and is there, are there lymph nodes that are enlarged? Um, are there, is there any evidence of a small intestinal mass or even large intestinal mass um, as, as well? So the ultrasound can certainly be, be very helpful. And I should go back, I forgot to mention that part of every physical exam should be a rectal exam. Um, my only um, places that I don't do a rectal exam is on cats unless they're sedated. So I wouldn't suggest doing a rectal exam on cats that are not sedated. Um, Good and, advice. Yeah, and little, little dogs and generally less than three to five kilograms is where I think that, that rectal examinations is not helpful. But that's really an important component of your physical exam and, and should be done because um, that if, if there's tenesmus and blood in the stool, um, then things like rectal masses and polyps and whatnot are, are on your differential list as well. Um, so going back to the ultrasound, you want to have a better idea of, of is there any involvement of disease outside the small and outside of the gastrointestinal tract. Um, and then also looking at the layers and, and um, the, um, the structure of the small intestine. Um, what does it look like? Is there mucosal enlargement or diffuse thickening? Um, you know, is there any evidence of, of mass-like structures um, that, you know, throughout that small intestine? Is there obviously intersusception or evidence of partial obstruction? We sometimes see foreign bodies that are chronic partial foreign, foreign bodies that, that can pop up that, that um, can cause um, diarrhea. Um, so, you know, certainly the ultrasound can be really helpful um, for that. Um, so you gather all of that information and obviously it, each step of the way, at least in my approach, I, I stop with and, and touch base with the clients and, and decide, you know, based upon that information, do they want to go ahead and do um, empirical treatment or food trials and those sorts of things? Or do they want to go down and be more aggressive um, based upon um, our findings and do endoscopy or surgery? Um, so each each result that you get helps decide and dictate what what way you go and and from the front line is this patient sick or or um, relatively healthy also helps guide how aggressive you want to be um, but ultimately acquisition of gastrointestinal biopsies is is really um, 
often the best thing that you need to do um, after you've done all of that other homework. Um, I tend in healthy, quote unquote, so non-systemically unwell um, pets um, and dogs in particular, um, that I haven't found significant abnormalities on their blood work and their ultrasound, their TLI is normal. Um, I often um, will pause at that point in time before jumping into endoscopy um, and do, and I, I know that, that we'll likely be talking about empirical treatment um, shortly. Um, so, you know, that is something that, that I might do at that point, but certainly there's, it's, you know, in other situations we, we roll on and do um, upper and lower gastrointestinal endoscopy to, to gather small and, and large intestinal biopsies. If the patient has evidence of small intestinal disease and we don't feel that endoscopy is going to be able to get a diagnosis from um, from just the methodology of, of endoscopy, um, then obviously surgical biopsies is, is another option too if there's a mass, for example, that needs to be um, removed. Um, if there's evidence of lymphoma, um, often, um, so an infiltrative disease, if there's large lymph nodes, often we want to try and do fine needle aspirates of the lymph nodes before jumping into surgery or endoscopy as well. So that's that's where the, there's lots of different variations of the theme, but that's the the, the broad explanation of, of how I would approach these patients. So clearly there is a lot that you can do yes. in terms of diagnostics. So for the average practitioner in the field, say, uh, presented with a dog that's had diarrhea for a couple of weeks, uh, having the conversation with the owner about uh, you know, potential diagnostics, possibly referring to a specialist such as yourself for some of that more detailed workup. Is there anything the general practitioner either should do immediately as a type of empirical treatment or that they should do while the animal is waiting for a referral to a specialist such as yourself or waiting for additional diagnostic test results to come back? What can be done in the meantime? Because you always have that client who's there who's saying, I've brought my dog in, please do something right now. I don't want to just wait for test results at the moment. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, and I think a lot of, a lot of what, I, you know, a lot of, of the stuff that I've initially talked about can be done in general practice before referral. Um, you know, and I think that, as I said, baseline blood work and, and your fecal, um, you know, TLI, cortisol, B12 are all things that can be done um, by, by the general practitioner prior to referral. Um, I I do believe in that it's very important to empirically deworm um, the the dog as well as any in contact pets as well. Um, I think that that's really important, even if the fecal flotation is negative, um, because it's certainly you know as as I'm sure you know, being a large animal internist, that we don't always have um, shedding of of um, you know of, of um, evidence of parasites in your fecal ONP, um, and tapeworms don't come up um, on your routine fecal assessments either. So certainly ensure that your um, your um, medication that you choose to deworm the patients includes praziquantel as well and then repeat it in in three weeks um, I'm a big believer in dietary management and I feel that um, you know a lot of the times people reach for medications before they go back to basics and do dietary changes and so um, if it's the first time that the pet has you know the dog has had diarrhea then you know a gastrointestinal diet um, you know one of the sort of the GI um, diets from you know Heels or Royal Canin or um, Purina um, I think are, are very good choices um, in the immediate 
in the immediate time. Um, and I'm a firm believer in probiotics. Um, you know, I think that that's a really important component. Um, I don't generally reach for antibiotics um, as my frontline, and to be honest, rarely. Um, but um, but you know the three major things that I think are a good sort of frontline choices before referral, um, or even if you have a client that doesn't want referral, um, you know diet deworming and, and starting with probiotics. Those are the things that that I think are the, in my personal opinion, um, are the the fundamental um, parts of, of, of empirical treatment for these guys. And it makes sense to avoid antibiotics in a case like that, especially given what you listed as sort of the common causes. We're not dealing with necessarily an infectious pathogen, but dysbiosis being much more of a common um, factor and antibiotics can actually make that worse, of course. So oh absolutely there's there's a lot of evidence um to suggest and and at the acbim um last year they presented some really interesting research looking at the fecal um, microbiome and and sort of fecal cultures of dogs healthy dogs that were given metronidazole and tylosin um and how it changed the bacterial flora and how a number of those dogs uh, took a long time if ever to return to a normal considered um, a, a normal bacterial flora so um, I, I'm not um, I'm not a huge advocate for, for antibiotics, um, and anyone who works with me at my clinic knows that that's I'm I'm fairly um, firm on 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 my thoughts in in that category. Fantastic. So, my last question, <clears throat> excuse me. There's been a lot of buzz in recent years about something called fecal transplantation for treatment <laughs> of chronic diarrhea. This is sometimes called the the Crappuccino, mm -hmm. um, which is essentially, actually, I'm going to get you to explain mm -hmm. it, but um, what is fecal transplantation? Uh, do we have any evidence for it being effective? How effective is it? And when do you recommend it? Yeah, I think that that's, uh, it's a great topic. Um, and, you know, and I think to, to take a, a, a step back and, and sort of look at um, bacterial dysbiosis and, and what it is and when it occurs. And I think that going back to, to antibiotics too, um, any cause of gastrointestinal inflammation. So, and, and I'm sure anyone listening knows that there's a, you know, there's number of different things that, that can cause diarrhea acute and chronic. Any of those causes will result in some bacterial dysbiosis. Um, and so um, that's where probiotics um, really come into to play to try and settle that down and, and, and help um, repopulate the bacteria with, with the healthy and, and a more balanced population of, um, of, of bacteria. Bacteria, um, and I think that that fecal transplant is taking that to a whole different level, and and I I think it's it's really interesting, and there's a lot of really interesting research that's coming out, um, as I'm sure anyone who um, who knows about it knows, it's pretty controversial. Um, there are some people who are very pro um, fecal transplant, and there's other internists, and and I've been in in um, you know lectures at conferences where there's a lot of people who are against it because they don't feel there's enough evidence yet but I think there is certainly evidence coming out to say that it really makes a significant difference and obviously Dr. Scott Weiss um, at, at OVC has, has um, is very excited interested and, and um, published on it 
Um, there was a recent um, parvovirus paper that came out in the Journal of Internal Medicine that looked at using par um, uh, fecal transplants for, for the management of, of parvo puppies and found that there was a shorter resolution of the diarrhea. Um, so, you know, there is certainly more papers and, and research coming out. Um, so what is it? It's really what you think it is. Um, it's, it's acquiring a fecal sample from a healthy screen donor. Um, and at our clinic, at our clinic, we, we, um, follow Dr. Scott Weiss's guidelines in the way that the pets need to be, um, usually, um, a year to five years of age. Um, they can't have had any antibiotic therapy for, um, a minimum of six months, ideally for longer than that. They've been on routine, um, deworming medications. Um, and then there's the screening tests that we, we go through. Obviously, they can't have parasites. Parasites. We do screen them for Giardia, Salmonella, and Campylobacter um, because we want to try and make sure that they're not um, subclinical um, shedders of, of whatnot, um, of anything that could be patho pathogenic. Um, there's a lot of debate in. Um, how the sample is stored and, and what's the best way to manage these these samples. But basically, once you have a patient that is is being screened, um, you collect their poo. Um, and um, we've started to, to freeze um, the donor's um, poop, so we have it stored. And that's what um, that was the protocol that they used in the parvovirus paper. Um, and so you have aliquots of poo <laughs> in your freezer. Um, and essentially then you um, mix the, um, the fecal material with, um, with usually sterile saline. Um, there's been discussion on, you know, whether or not milk products and whatnot is good, but I'm not entirely sure that there's any evidence behind that at this point. Um, and then you sift it, I'm um, sorry, um, uh, you sort of um, I can't think of the word. Strain it. Strain it, that's it. Um, to make your fecal frappuccino or your crappuccino, whatever you want to call it, um, after sort of mixing it and whatnot, and, and then and then you administer it. Um, How do you administer it usually? Well, it's ideally, um, and this is where there's obviously personal variations in, in the way that, um, you know, you know everybody does it a little bit differently, I think. Um, in, I feel that I've had the most success on this procedure um, when my patient has been sedated and it stays within the colon for a longer period of time. And so my process is that I have my patients sedated um, usually, and obviously this is very um, patient dependent, so um, this is not a blanket recommendation, but something um, such as dexmedetomidine where they are um, very heavily sedated, but they don't have to be anesthetized. Um, it's ideally you give them a warm water enema before they are um, sedated, so their colon is evacuated. Um, and then um, very gently, of course, you you um, instill the fecal, um, fecal transplantation via an enema. Um, and um, using Dr. Weiss's protocol, we, we turn them, um, you know, um, it's over a 20-minute period, we turn them to try and help them, so left, lateral, right, lateral, and, and upside down, um, to try and help um, coat the colon as much as, as possible. And what kind of volume are you administering? I think it's usually 10 mils per kilogram, if I'm not mistaken. Um but I can't remember exactly. I'd have to double check the protocol. But it's 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 a relatively um, reasonable volume of of, um, of liquid that you're giving. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you want to give it very slowly. You don't want to rupture the colon, especially if you have a um, have a, a patient that has um, you know significant colonic disease. Um, 
Other ways, of course, is is to give it um, orally, um, although there's I've had a couple, but there's a few patients that will drink the fecal material afterwards. <laughs> there's no accounting for um, some dogs. Some will, and I have seen it. It's kind of gross. Um, but, you know, certainly um, you can instill the, um, the fecal um, transplant through your scope um, at the time of endoscopy. Um, and, um, you know, that's certainly um, a, a good way to do it. And I know that obviously as humans, they have their capsules. Um, you know, the, the, um, my understanding, that's the major way that, that they do it in, in humans. So orally. Um, and, and would you recommend oral if it's, for example, a small bowel or suspect primarily a small bowel issue versus a large bowel issue? Or does it actually make a difference? It's, an, it's a great question. And, you know, I, I've done an, a number of these over the years. Um, and I think that, that fecal transplants um, in most situations are adjunctive treatment as opposed to the only treatment. Um, but I've had really good success um, in patients um, and, and sort of the, the um, best example that I have um, is a, a little dog that came to me and, and she had very severe protein-losing enteropathy um, and her um, albumin was really low. Um, and she was a challenging case because we had she kept on reacting to any of the immune-suppressive medications. Now, she was biopsy-confirmed, PLE, and so she was being immune-suppressed. But every time I had to change her from a different um, immune-suppressive medication, obviously her proteins would decrease. Um, so I use fecal transplant and she actually had five fecal transplants over a period of time. And each time I gave her the, um, the fecal enema, um, she actually, her proteins would increase a little bit and stabilize and gave me a little bit more time to try and get her underlying disease controlled. Um, so I do think the colonic, you know, the enema does work for small intestinal disease. Um, obviously it's one tube that that communicates with everything. Um, so um, intuitively you would think that that you would need to give it um, primarily into the small intestine for small intestinal diseases, but I don't necessarily think that's um, that's the only way. You know, certainly the enemas do work as well. Fantastic. And do you have any additional words of wisdom or advice um, that you would uh, like to add on this particular subject for our listening practitioners? Um, I always have words of advice. Anyone who <laughs> works with me knows that I have um, a lot of advice. Here's your chance. Here's my chance. Um, I think that, that you know, certainly as I said, that there's there's a lot of things that can be done for these patients before referral. And, and you know, I think one of the... Um, the most important things to um, discuss with the clients um, when you're faced with this situation, and I know they're frustrating cases um, for sure, and I know these clients, you know, they're frustrating clinically as well as, you know, clients get pretty frustrated, um, you know, and fed up with putting up with, you know, chronic diarrhea. Um, always talk to your clients about the options of referral, you know, and, and see if that's something that they're interested in or acquiring biopsies and whatnot. Um, and I'm of the adage of please try not to start immune suppressive medications such as prednisone if that client is um, a client that, that may um, consider referral. Um, because once you know we start a patient on prednisone, um, that makes the ability to diagnose things such as lymphoma, um, and this is particularly important for kitty cats with small um, sort of um, when they develop chronic small cell lymphoma, um, which can be challenging to diagnose. The moment we put these pets on, on prednisone, that can make the making a definitive diagnostic diagnosis much harder. Um, so I, I feel that, that that's where I put 
discussing what the owner's desires and wishes are, um, you know, in, into that very frontline discussion is, is, you know, let's try diet deworming probiotics first. And, and it, uh, truthfully, that resolves a number of patients, um, a number of symptoms in in um, in most of the patients that, that come to see me. Those those three things, um, you know, make sure that it's a true diet trial. Um, there's so many different um, so many different diets that are on the market now. Um, if you walk into to any pet food store, there's so many different options, and they're not all the same. So if you're doing a diet trial, you know, stick with a veterinary prescription brand where we know that um, that's a true novel protein um, and that there's not going to be any cross-contamination. Um, so those are the things that, that I certainly see um, in, um, you know, in practice, and, and um, it's something that, that I'm sure everybody he sees it's very common um mm -hmm. for sure but everybody poops right yes yes bronwyn thank you so much for all of that information and uh bronwyn works at the vca canada 404 uh clinic mm -hmm. um just north of toronto yes correct? yep so uh but we thank you very much for coming in today to do this podcast for the ontario animal health network and don't forget uh, you can find other resources and links to our other podcasts just visit owen.ca which is o-a-h-n.ca and hopefully we'll catch you next time thank you